We have all these societal norms that are hard to meet. And the tougher the the child or adolescent is to meet them, whether they have learning differences or stressed experiences in childhood, but the more aggravated my nervous system is and the more unsafe it feels, the stronger that first drink is for my nervous system. And yep, they get to that feeling normal. And ultimately, it's a very gratifying experience. The more stressed a person is, the more traumatized a person is, the more unhealthy experiences, the more adverse childhood experiences that a person has, all of those set the the stage for how that first drink or drug is experienced. Welcome to Hope Stream, the podcast for parents of kids who are misusing drugs or alcohol or who are in active addiction, in treatment, or in those early stages of recovery. I'm your host, Brenda Zane. I'm a fellow parent to a child who struggled and nearly lost his life to multiple fentanyl overdoses. So I am right there with you. The good news is you don't have to do this alone anymore. You have found an understanding and supportive place where you can come when things get tough. And I am so glad that you're here. You can learn more about me and how I serve parents like you at my website, brendazane.com. Welcome, welcome. If you are listening in real time, it's March 2022, and there is a lot going on in the world right now. I just found out that the mask mandate in Washington state will be lifted on March 11th, which is tomorrow. So that feels like a step in the right direction For those of us who live in states where we have been very restricted, of course, there is the war happening with Russia and Ukraine, and that is surreal, to say the least, to be watching play out. So this episode about trauma feels really well-timed, and I say that because often as parents, when we have a child who is struggling with substance use, We will hear the question from various people and therapists, what kind of trauma has your son or daughter experienced? And it doesn't always necessarily compute because we think of things like pandemics and wars as trauma. Well, this is a subject that is vital to understanding what's going on with our kids. And I got to have a really, really informative conversation about all things trauma and substance use with Steve Sawyer. He is an expert in trauma and specifically in how trauma impacts adolescents and their relationships with substances. So I basically hit the bullseye with him. Steve is going to give you some of his background as we get into this, so I won't repeat all of that here. But what I think is really important and why I wanted to have him join me for this episode is that he and his staff work with preteens and adolescents every single day. So when he talks about this, he is talking from direct experience, not from a place of theory. This will be an important episode for you if your son or daughter is struggling with substance use or with emotional or behavioral issues. They may be oppositional, defiant, depressed. They might have crippling anxiety. These are all relevant and you're going to want to hear about the true origins of trauma, what it actually is, because it is not big, scary, or stressful events in our kids' lives. And that was definitely news to me. A little bit about Steve. He is a licensed psychotherapist with over a decade of intervention with tough-to-reach clients in settings that range from residential, community-based, outpatient, and wilderness therapy. He's trained in several unique therapeutic models, including somatic trigger release, traumatic memory reprocessing, and heart math. And he's also recognized internationally as a brain-spotting trainer and consultant. If that's not enough, he has authored two books and co-founded Wisconsin's only wilderness therapy program, New Visions Wilderness. Steve's largest project has been the development of New Visions' trauma-informed care model in the wilderness setting, and that has really challenged and set the bar for the entire wilderness therapy industry on making healthier interventions with their clients. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode because there are a ton of resources that Steve shared with me. We didn't have time to cover them live because I wanted to squeeze every drop out of him that I could talking about his topic. So 
The show notes are at brendazane.com forward slash podcast. And then look for this episode or scroll to episode 104, which is this one. Okay, lace up your shoes or grab a mug of something and listen in because you are definitely going to want to hear every minute of this important episode with Steve Sawyer. Steve, it is so great to have you here today on Hope Stream. I'm thrilled to have this conversation about trauma. It's a topic that is all over the place and very confusing for parents. So thank you so much for joining me. You bet. I'm glad to be here. And uh, parents, I, I work with parents in our program every day. I, I really enjoy being able to work alongside parents in their journey. Yeah, we even had to delay this um, recording by a few minutes because Steve was handling a parent call, which goes along with the job, right? When you're running wilderness programs for for young folks. Well, it is, I know there's so many things that we could talk about, but I really wanted to narrow in on this topic of trauma for a couple of reasons. I think one, as a parent going through it myself four or five years ago, I didn't think my kid had any trauma. I was like, this kid has led the golden life, right? Like had everything he needed, I couldn't see from my vantage point and my, I guess, education point that he would have had any trauma. And it was very confusing because people would talk about it. And I thought, "Eh, that's for other kids, like kids that have been hungry or abused or things like that. So I'm really glad to be talking about this because I think there's a lot of parents in those shoes thinking my kid does not have any trauma. They are the luckiest kids in the world. They grew up in this amazing house. They had all these resources. Uh, But I think what we're finding, and obviously what you're an expert in, is that understanding of what is trauma for our kids, especially, and then how to, I guess, not manage it, but identify it. So before we do that, could you just give us a quick background, who you are? I did, you know, introduce you, but I'd love to just get a little bit of, I love to hear the journey of how people end up where they are, because I'm sure you didn't, you know, go into high school thinking, I am going to be <laughs> the owner of wilderness therapy programs. So maybe you can just give us a quick uh, one-on-one on, on Steve Sawyer. Yeah, well, it depends on how far you want me to go back on that one. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I got into this line of work actually uh, late in my college times. I really was fascinated with the criminal justice system and the people that were inside of it. And uh, early on, I I met some people that convinced me to start mentoring youth. And when I was mentoring these youth, the struggles they were having that I was interacting with, all of it, it just amazed me of how people, what people's life journey was to bring them to that point of intervention and needing support. And that went into me uh, starting as a line staff, then going from entering into working at a residential treatment program for uh, adolescent boys specifically. In the unit that I ended up in, it was actually uh, post-corrections boys first. I was transitioned to some other units throughout time of working there. I worked there for a number of years, but my entire kind of early college years, I was working with at-risk boys. That culminated into me starting to do intensive in-home intervention all over in Southeast Wisconsin and was doing work with, you know, challenging situations and families. And as that progressed, I quickly moved into leadership of our clinic and later became the clinic's director. And we, I ran one of the largest outpatient mental health clinics in Wisconsin at that time. We're focused on uh, trauma work, dual diagnosis work. Both of these coins of lenses of work before they were trendy to look at it through that lens. And uh, and I was raised by incredible mentors. I've just been blessed with incredible mentors the entire span of my career. People took me under their wing. And, you know, inside of that work, I started working with adolescent boys uh, and girls that had five plus outpatient therapists. And I was getting some results. And one of the ways I got results was getting them outside. We we would break the mold of sitting in the office, staring at each other and getting out and walking. And there was a parkway not far from my office. We'd go and sit in the woods in that parkway oftentimes and have a session and, you know, do experiential kind of reflection, et cetera. And that was kind of my first dabbling in in the concept of wilderness therapy. Back then, I didn't even know that there was already programs already in existence in Utah and elsewhere. And I started taking my clients on uh, clinical retreats up in, into the north woods of Wisconsin. And the reputation built rapidly and people were asking for us to do it longer. And I was using a lot of our cutting edge research 
uh, from the Institute of Heart Math. I'm a faculty member of the Institute of Heart Math, which is really a stress research institution. And, you know, people were fascinated. I was capturing all these results on heart rate variation stress testing and then working with our clients out in the woods on developing self-regulation and a lot of things we hear about now that wasn't even really talked about back then um, in the late 90s, very often anyways. And so that progressed to uh, me meeting uh, the co-founder of New Vision Wilderness Therapy, Drew Warnbeck. And that's been a, a wild ride ever since for 15 years now. We just celebrated 15 years for our Wisconsin program. And uh, since then, we uh, launched the Shoots Wilderness Program in Bend, Oregon. The winters out here uh, drew me over to this side of the, the country. And I live in Bend, Oregon now. And then uh, right before the pandemic hit, we launched a Georgia program, First Light Wilderness. And so that's where we are today and how we involved in, in training all of our clinical staff. But also uh, we have a very heavy regimen of training uh, clinical understanding to our line staff inside of our program. And that's part of being our trauma responsive uh, wilderness therapy model. And so uh, this last year or two years ago, we got published with the APA from our research results of 15 years from, on heart rate variation testing. And uh, we now have a model that's stood the stand of time and pandemics and has research to support it. Oh, that has to be fascinating to look at so many years of research, yeah. especially through the ups and downs of things that have happened in the world during that time. I can imagine that would be, that, that's a whole nother episode that we could do, but um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, with the pandemic stress response, you know, it was up in everyone and We've had a lot of ups and downs in 15 years when you look at our, our culture here, you know, lots of ups and downs. Yeah. Why? I guess when I think about the folks who are listening here and myself, you know, we all have kids who are really struggling with substance use. And that might vary from, I think my kids just smoking weed every day. I say just, I say that like that's nothing. That is a lot, but everything from that to, you know, very serious addictions with, fentanyl and and all of those things. And so I think as parents, we think about that. And then we hear this thing, trauma, and we're like, I just want to get this kid off drugs. And so I'm wondering what is sort of so important about understanding trauma when we're looking at it through the lens of a parent who is watching their child use these, these drugs every day. What is that connection that we need to really understand? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, being a, a person who I'm a dual diagnosis trained clinician. So just to clarify that, I didn't state that in kind of my developmental time, but I always had a dual track of looking at mental health, which included the trauma work and substance abuse and, and seeing how they interface with each other constantly. And the research has been very conclusive that, you know, there's a strong correlation between the two. Inside of that experience, there's a particular cycle I'd like to talk about with families, etc. that actually was developed for attachment science and attachment theory. And it's a really basic one. There's been variations of it many times, but it's, it's a pretty simple cycle, which is when we're a baby and we're born into the world, we have these needs that we, we need to get met. And inside of these needs that we need to make, get met, whether it be we need to be fed or we need sleep and rest or we need, uh, you know, to even have our diaper changed. That need is communicated by our nervous system uh, rising behind that need and, and it gets aggravated. And as it aggravates more and more, you can hear a baby get fussy. You can hear it get kind of moody. Then it progresses to crying. And that arousal cycle behind the nervous system is a way that we've been programmed as animals to communicate when we're stressed and when we have a need that's not being met. So this need not being met is met with arousal. Arousal is communicated through crying or emotionality. Both of those, as we progress in our development, it becomes more of an emotional expression. And then as it progresses from there, caregiver responsiveness is a key variable here. So if I cry and I want to be fed, but instead you put me in bed, that's a misattunement. And so it's aggravating. It aggravates the baby even more. So one of the key attributes of this entire cycle is how a caregiver responds to that arousal and it being accurately met. So if you hear me cry hungry and you give me food, I trust and I have a gratifying experience. So I go from being hungry to feeling a sense of gratification, which was brought to me by 
the caregiver. So by somebody meeting these arousal needs and being responsive as a caregiver to our stress state, we experience relational gratification and nervous system gratification. So the nervous system settles back down. I got my need met. And the, the attribute of having good matches between what I'm aroused and communicating and what my caregiver responds with gives me gratification. That happening over a span of time and being matched well creates trust. Therapist and therapist world talk about trust all the time and rapport, but it's actually a nervous system experience to trust someone. It means that you're providing me something that fulfills a need inside of me and I can feel it and I can experience it. When we look at addiction issues, it's like attachment to an unhealthy caregiver, which is if I'm aroused and on edge or frustrated with my day or I'm angry, and my need is to get rid of that arousal and it, my, I'm agitated and I'm dysregulated, an important word we'll talk about on and off in this podcast. I'm dysregulated. When you bring me as a caregiver, your response, it settles me down. But the older I get, the less reliant I am on another person doing that. And the more reliant I become on me self-regulating my situation. And when people develop poor self-regulation skills or... Caregivers haven't had the best responsiveness. We live in a stressed world. So we as parents are stretched to the edge all of the time, not just with kids, but work hours and demands to get our needs met for our family and safety. When there's not attentiveness to that arousal, that's from the caregiver in a good way, or we just give too much. And it's just, we create an existence of gratification for our child all the time. And now we go into the outside world and it's just hard because my friend's are hard on me or somebody makes fun of me at school, I don't have the ability, I haven't developed the ability to self-regulate well. So when we have that combination of either one of those two, and it's culminated in a nervous system to a point of stress response, it's kind of now programmed in, that's what we call dysregulation. Now, if I get high or I have my first drink, my nervous system experiences it completely differently for the very first time than somebody who doesn't have that dysregulation living inside of them. It's experienced completely differently from a person who has self-regulation capability versus somebody who is not. The person who doesn't have self-regulation capability, it's like, wow, that's the first time I've ever felt that come along. Right. And, And it becomes a solution to a problem. This arousal, this dysregulation in my nervous system, it's a solution, not a problem at that moment. And the more aggravated, the more traumatized, and the more stressed the nervous system is, the bigger the solution is with that very first experience. You talk to people that I work in addictions all the time that say, man, that first drink or that very first high of heroin was like a big, giant, warm hug. Right. Or what we hear is, it's the first time I feel normal. Yes. Because, right, it's taking the nervous system from a place of dysregulation to not being dysregulated. and. That is what normal is supposed to be. And again, when you look at addictions work, why somebody doesn't feeling normal is essential. In fact, you know, my friend Gabor Monte is newest book coming out in September. I got the chap- first chapter of him reading right now. Uh, it's not available yet, just to be clear, but he's having me review it for a reason. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it's called The Myth of Normal. And we live in a society where we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. It's part of our natural kind of human mammal response to look around us and say, hey, are we as safe as those people? Do we have all our needs met like those people over there? So we do all this comparison and all these other variables that make us feel less than or not normal. We have all these societal norms that are hard to meet. And the tougher the the child or adolescent is to meet them, whether they have learning differences or, you know, stressed experiences in childhood, the, the more aggravated my nervous system is and the more unsafe it feels, the stronger that first drink is for my nervous system. And yep, they get to that feeling normal. And ultimately, it's a very gratifying experience. The more stressed a person is, the more traumatized a person is, the more unhealthy experiences, the more adverse childhood experiences, ACEs experiences that a person has, all of those set the the stage for how that first drink or drug is experienced. And it's either going to be extremely gratifying or it's just something I experienced and it was all right. And in that is where the, the, the raw roots of addiction lives, because the more unnormal I am, the more gratifying it feels and the more I trust it. And in today's world, 
there's a lot. It's hard to trust anything. It's stressful. You know, uh, parents' predictability sometimes is a variable, right? Because we have to be at work and do this project or this and that. And, and you know, can I trust parents' responsiveness or emotional availability to me when I'm struggling? The simple things like this, when I work with addiction, sometimes it's just parents were in a stressful time and, and they weren't as responsive. So I was left feeling alone. And inside of that, you know, I feel lonely. And then when I have that first drink, it feels way stronger uh, in my nervous system than somebody who hasn't got that going on. Yeah. Thank you for explaining it that way, because I think that that helped me understand that when I hear the word trauma, it doesn't have to be war or rape or some horrible thing that we think of. I think often when we hear the word trauma, it can be one of these things that just isn't working right. And then you've got all these different kinds of personalities of kids. And today, you know, I think social media sort of says you need to look this way, you need to act this way, you need to be this way. And for kids who aren't that way, it can be really, really stressful because now they're seeing, oh my gosh, everybody else is like that and I'm not. I'm this quirky kid over here who just is themselves and there's nothing wrong with that, but they're comparing themselves to something um, I, I can't wait to for this book, The Myth of Normal. That's a brilliant title because it is like, what is normal for these kids? So that really helped kind of peel back the onion on this issue of trauma that parents well, it, 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 it To define that trauma word a little more because it's kind of being thrown around. It's kind of like, if you go back about 10 years, ADHD was thrown around and everybody right. was ADHD and everybody's talking about ADHD. To define trauma very specifically, Trauma is going through an experience and not being able to fully process that experience in that moment and that there's an after effect, a physiology after effect that's last, lasting afterwards. And it should proceed beyond six months of time per the PTSD kind of criteria, but it's a lasting experience. So there's acute stress experience, which means I get very stressed and I feel stressed for a certain amount of time afterwards. And there are a lot of people going in and out of acute stress day to day, but the residual after effect of that stress isn't quite as dynamic as it is when it's trauma. So trauma, again, this word being thrown around a lot, has some very specific ingredients that we know through research kind of have the the largest impact to differentiate acute stress experience that any one of us might go through at any given time based upon some big life change and the difference of that and having ongoing after effect for months afterwards. And so in trauma, two of the keyest elements that we know come through the research, especially in adolescence, uh, a lot of this came out of the studies of the National Childhood Traumatic Stress Network. The research that they did found that adolescents were not meeting a lot of the criteria for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, when they really studied the attributes of what that person was going through. And those of us that were trauma therapists way back then would over and over be in this dilemma because it, a lot of adolescents and preteens didn't meet the criteria for PTSD. So... What happened in that process, the Trauma Center of Boston really started with the forefront of this research, which was to look at what developmental trauma key attributes look like. And there are six forms of dysregulation that we see. And dysregulation means a dysregulated nervous system. Our nervous system is, you know, aggravated basically on an ongoing basis. And so when we look at individuals that have a lot of trauma in the first 10 to 12 years of their life, a lot of their attributes will not fit the criteria. And even the treatment that's all been designed towards PTSD and a lot of the strategies that have been employed of treating PTSD, that is a diagnosis that was born of research on combat veterans, really, the most, missed the mark on a lot of the research indicators. And so inside of that, when we start to define trauma, and we, then we start to define it in adolescent or childhood terms, which is in a brain that's developing, it's creating new neural pathways. The way the brain responds to that and kind of builds around those extreme stressors in childhood is different than an adult does if they go off 
and they fight in a war. And so a key element when we're talking about trauma is, 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 is you're right. It doesn't have to be abuse or neglect. For example, one of the most common missed ones in today's challenging adolescent world is bullying. Hmm. Bullying is a, can be a massive traumatic experience. It, it involves some of the most significant attributes of trauma experience being witnessed by others and judged by others. The shame that accompanies being through that. We don't list that on our list of traumas. And, but yet it's in our developmental time frame where somebody's formulating their entire identity and it happens through peers. So things like bullying, parental divorce, which is over 50% now, more like 60% of households, parental divorce happens in. Like this is, these are, these things like literally uproot the entire identity structure of a child. And inside of that, there's a lot of pain that, that happens. And it doesn't show up or often get correlated as being traumatic. It's like, oh, well, he went through bullying. Okay. Or, oh, divorce. Yeah. You know, 60% of families go through divorce, but it's a massive upheaval in the nervous system in a developmental time frame where I don't feel safe. I feel uh, vulnerable. Um, I feel vulnerable either to my peers or even to each of my parents that might even be alienating each other, for example. And so these kinds of things have dramatic impact in the, in the nervous system structure around safety and understanding what the world around us represents, either safe or unsafe. And so people that have traumatic experience develop a narrative of feeling unsafe in various scenarios. And you look at a kid who goes through bowling, where's eight hours of their day spent? It's in school with other kids. Well, imagine the narrative that formulates after you've been bullied a number of times in front of people and now you're sitting in school really terrified of that. That's literally living in a traumatic situation that starts to mirror living in a domestic violence household. Taking a quick break because I want to let you know about the private online community I created and host for moms who have kids who are misusing drugs or alcohol. It's called The Stream, and this is not a Facebook group. It's completely private, away from all social media sites where you start to take care of yourself. Because through all of this, who is taking care of you? This is a membership where we teach craft skills to help you have better conversations and improve your relationships. And we help you get as physically, mentally, and spiritually healthy as possible so that you can be even stronger for your son or daughter. You can join us free for two weeks to see if it's the right kind of support for you. And you can learn about all the benefits you get as a member at thestreamcommunity.com. I will see you there. And now let's get back to the conversation with Steve. So that makes a ton of sense when you think about that. And and I think that also goes because another thing that I hear a lot and I thought myself is, well, I have more than one kid and they all grew up in the same house and they all went through the same divorce. How come this one is over here, you know, smoking pot every day and the other ones are fine? Like, that's where I think we start to blame the kid for being not able to handle it or, or something. Do you, do you see that? Or is that something that you... Yeah, absolutely. And that's where we have to look at what kind of individual factors were already in play that made that person more susceptible. So the more of those alone experiences or powerless experiences somebody has previous to that big event has a huge factor in that. I mentioned this in my notes to you that two of the key elements we know that are a part of traumatization, one that has been very hyper-focused on until more recently is the experience of powerlessness. My ability to control what's happening in front of me, I can't control it. So now I kind of fall victim to the situation. I'm surviving the situation and that gets all held inside of my nervous system because I can't do anything with it. So it all gets trapped on the inside. You know, books like Body Keeps the Score from Bessel van der Kolk, who, uh, you know, I've, I've had conversations with that throughout the years at lots of conferences and, you know, I had a lot of research conversations too with him. His book really outlines how this, the body just takes all that powerlessness and just stores it inside the body. And the powerlessness has been very focused on throughout the PTSD kind of treatment focused of this event of powerlessness. And it, I said that specifically, an event. 
well, what happens when this kid's in school and he's being bullied every day for days on end? And now it's a hundred or a thousand events because I'm growing up in a, in a volatile household, et cetera. This starts to differentiate the situation. And the research found in that particular, those kinds of situations when there was a lot of experiences of powerlessness and traumatization experience that the nervous system, the, the loudest factor when you interview these individuals was the aloneness of the experience. Caregivers' responsiveness became one of the key identifiers of whether or not somebody showed traumatic symptomology long-term or not. How responsive were we as a caregiver or as a parent to take action, to invoke safety? Some things we don't have control over. Like, for example, you know, so, you know, did we go in and advocate in a school or not? Or did we feel like we could influence that? Or So caregiver responsiveness is the element of aloneness. I go through these experiences, they're threatening to me, and then I'm going through them alone and I don't have somebody to process it with, or I don't feel anybody understands me, or maybe we just brush it off. It's like, oh, he said something mean to you at school. Like, you know, just, just ignore him. But yet, you know, a whole classroom witnessed it. So I felt very embarrassed in front of the whole class. And now the whole school is talking and calling me a nickname. So the more aloneness there is, and, and me and Gabber did a panel across the country, uh, we've done a bunch of them together now, where we really talk and tear apart. Powerlessness is absolutely can create traumatization, but the loudest point inside of the powerlessness of an experience in trauma is the aloneness inside of that moment. And that can happen before, during, and after. So when we're talking about a child who responds differently to a divorce, for example, what was the relational structure and connectedness before the divorce, during the divorce, and then after the divorce? And Gabber and I were interviewing one of our students in the field, and she'd done amazing work on a specific traumatic event. And she could talk about that event now when she couldn't talk about it before. But when he asked about how her parents responded, her head just dropped immediately. And that aloneness part was still very alive there. So they had, we had done a great job of working through the event, but the caregiver responsiveness part of that was still an extreme wound for this young lady. And it, it had a whole narrative in and of itself. And so, so aloneness experiences are one of the loudest and biggest parts of treating childhood, preteen, adolescent, and young adult trauma that in a field where a lot of people focus on treating powerlessness. Mm -hmm. And I know you had said that in adolescence, it looks different than PTSD and what, what may get quote unquote diagnosed is ADHD, oppositional. So we may even be applying the wrong band-aid to the issue, I guess. Very commonly, is that the wrong band-aid? And again, oppositionality. So when we look at these dysregulations that, that are a part of, of the nervous system's kind of stress response to being threatened throughout time, when we, we break them down, there's quite a, when they develop the diagnosis, it's a proposed diagnosis, developmental trauma disorder is a proposed diagnosis right now. It's been proposed to the APA, basically awaiting further research. And that's not because there's not research behind it. It took PTSD 15 years to be accepted into the diagnostic manuals. Wow. Um, 15 years of research to be accepted. In developmental trauma, uh, there's, there's six dysregulations. So there's affect or emotional dysregulation, which starts to describe a lot of teens, except this will have a pretty extreme kind of swing in it. You know, it's, it's a level of moodiness and reactivity that is now a notch up from kind of standard day-to-day -day teen kind of process of having a bad day. It starts to go from day-to-day to month-to-month, -to, -month to year-to-year. Somatic dysregulation. So the body's dysregulated. And this means like, maybe I need to move a lot. I, I feel the need to flight. I need to move around a lot. And, and, and I can't sit still. Well, let's see. Where does that start to fall into? Hmm. <laughs> Attentional dysregulation, which says it directly. I, I can't focus my attention in a particular direction which comes from uh, my focus on the external environment of checking, am I safe or am I not safe? What's over there? What's that noise? And, you know, kind of joke and say ADHD people, squirrel, squirrel. They look over there. What is that over there? It distracts them very quickly. Right. That's the brain in a state of hypervigilance searching for the threat around it. Behavioral dysregulation, which 
oftentimes is what comes to, you know, parents first and loudest is some kind of behavior happens at school or at home that they're not expecting or they haven't seen before. And then it has a pattern to it. It gets very stuck. And so this is oftentimes what brings parents to this treatment place. Self-dysregulation. So my sense of self, one day I like myself, one day I hate myself. One day I like how I look. The next day I, I despise how I look. So my sense towards myself is dysregulated and unpredictable. And then the last one, relational dysregulation, which is parental to teenage relationship, which throughout time has always been a struggle. Teens are individuating and developing their own identities. They're supposed to be kind of working their away, themselves away from their parental identity and developing independence. But inside of it, there's natural friction for teenagers with parents. And then there's relational dysregulation, meaning my relationship to you is very volatile versus I'm trying to kind of work my distance away from you, but I now have reactivity to you that might even be misdirected or unpredictable in terms of how much misdirected it is. So those are the key attributes of that diagnosis that differentiated from adult PTSD symptoms. That is really, really helpful that you just walked through those because I can see, um, I can see my listeners going, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, like so many of those. So if you're seeing those as a parent, you're if you are the one who is nodding and going, uh-huh, that's my kid. And you've been thinking about treatment. I know wilderness therapy can sound very scary. And this isn't necessarily, this isn't an episode for or against wilderness therapy, but I know that it is an option that a lot of parents look at as uh last resort you know they've they've exhausted all of their local resources they are concerned for the safety of their kid that was me but i could not pull the trigger on wilderness therapy because i was so concerned about my already i knew my my kiddo had been traumatized in some way i didn't really know why but i thought okay i'm going to have him transported to another state away from his family at the like what parent would do that, right? That was in that was my mindset. So hearing this and knowing that the people that my son is going to be with have been trained and understand this, because once you understand this, it makes so much more sense. What's kind of going on in, I guess, not just with wilderness therapy, but in treatment programs in general for adolescents, because this seems like it is just vital to understand to be able to help them, um, not just help them in a therapeutic setting, but but get them there in a state of mind that they are ready to do some work. Yeah, this is the biggest dilemma that parents face with higher level care. Wilderness therapy, particularly, we, we, when we look at the continuum of care, we're one of the highest intensity kind of closest supervision environments. So stating that, Clearly, the ratio of staff to student tends to be higher in our wilderness therapy environment than almost any other environment out there. So oftentimes, the safety variable of wilderness uh, is misunderstood in that, yes, you're out in the woods. However, the tightness of the ratio of staff to students is, is high. But getting them there is a whole other story. And there's a huge point of discussion happening nationally right now about this. And when it comes to the experience of getting and necessitating a child getting the treatment, how far do we let things go before we have to make treatment happen is what parents have to ask themselves. Yeah. What is my bottom line where I will at this at this point, I will absolutely have no choice but to go straight into treatment, whether it's forced or not forced. Now, in trauma-informed care, you know, one of the principles is to try to avoid anything by force as much as possible. However, if somebody's trauma and or behavior is life-threatening on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that's self-harming behavior or extreme addictive drug use behavior, what is the bottom line before you as a parent necessitate, this is outside of my capability of time commitment and expertise to deal with. When is it time to hand them off? So inside of that, the fear of that is often because people haven't identified what their bottom line is yet. 
what has to happen first before I, I, there's no choice involved. And then, okay, what level are we at where it's like, okay, I could or could not go this direction, but very seldom do parents call us when there isn't something really serious going on. They've already done the outpatient therapy. They've often tried out intensive outpatient programs, still no progress. And it's like, you know what? Like we, we don't got much left to try. And, and when we're inside of that scenario and we're going to talk about leaving the behavior, especially when you're talking about addiction, leaving my addiction behind and going into a program, not a lot of individuals are going to choose to take that leap on their own. Correct. <laughs> and so this is where our parent boundaries and limits come in, where we have to enforce safety for our child. It's about enforcing safety, not harming our child. And by not enforcing safety and protection and security for our child, we actually help the addiction, the self-harm, the traumatic reaction, and the dysregulation get worse. And this is where so many professionals go off track to outpatient therapists of, well, don't send them away from your home. You're harming the attachment or the connection. But when most of the connection is based on abreaction from trauma or reaction from drug use and protecting my drug use, or most of the reaction in the relationship is coming just from a historical conflict, good, healthy therapy can't happen on that foundation. We have to get everybody stabilized to step into therapy. And so inside of that, that's where out-of-home placement becomes a necessity. And inside of that, could there be some um, impact or even some residual? Yes. But when you look at the, the view from a 30,000 foot view of where the person was headed in their trajectory. So what I love to do, have parents do is do a timeline and just lay out all the events. If we look in five years ahead with doing exactly what you're doing right now, where does that line go? And that's the part where parents are so, and even the clients that are advocating against transport right now, are so focused on that moment of transport, but not looking at what that timeline would have looked like in five years from now or three years from now, or in some of these cases, and in most cases coming to wilderness, one year from now, where are we going to be at? Or less. Yes. Are we talking five, six, 10 hospital stays, right? Before, and, and people will do that over and over again. And therapists will even enable that thinking when one of those times could be fatal. And, and so inside of that, I, I often... You know, it may or may not be a healthy metaphor, but I have had family members with cancer in my family where we know that when we use chemotherapy or radiation, uh, it harms themselves. Like, you know that people are going to be sick. You know that it's going to have some tissue uh, loss, for example, hair. We all expect that when it comes to cancer treatment. But what is it doing? It's trying to save that person's life from something that's growing inside of them. And so... When we look at trauma specifically and then the trauma correlation with addiction, there is definitely something growing inside of that person. This, this regulation is getting worse. The addiction or the use of substances is getting worse by the time most people call us. If it's not getting worse and it's staying the exact same and it's not life-threatening or if it's not progressing and that, that three-year line doesn't look like it's going to get worse or it's not going to lead to them being not who they are fully capable of being, you know, then maybe not. Maybe transport isn't right, the right choice. And, and I'm all, again, our program used to not, in the beginning, not take transport. So there was two elements. It was that, seeing that trajectory of three years or one year even out for a lot of the people that were calling us and then knowing we had to get them into treatment. It was, it was a life-saving situation. And then the other attribute is the conflict that would happen between the parent-child relationship when they wouldn't use a transport which, which is like, it would be, I, I mean, I literally was sitting at a table once where a kid threw a cup of hot coffee in his mom's lap oh. because she didn't want to do the transport. And now we have that to deal with in treatment, you know, at the front door of treatment. We already have two years of, of struggles with anger and stuff like that, but nothing at this level. Like at this moment, it was the worst anger she had ever seen from him. And so we have to think safety also. And inside of relational safety for the parent and the child, I love some of the new kind of trauma-informed models that are coming out for, uh, for transport, which often includes the parents to a certain point as much as they possibly can, that the kid and the parent can both handle well and stay in a state of regulation. And then when dysregulation is met on either side, it's like, okay, time to separate and move forward with the treatment process and trying to have it not be an aloneness experience. A great person, uh, Heather... Hayes out of Georgia has a transport group that 
really uh, focuses on um, parental engagement in it. And so their model has been fantastic, you know, but there are situations where the dysregulation is so high by the time we come to this level of care that on both sides, like it's absolutely essential. It's life-saving and it's essential so that there's no kinds of further repairs necessary in treatment because the relationship gets at its highest kind of acuity of dysregulation before change happens in the treatment process. Right, right. That was a great um, analogy uh, with the cancer. I really like that. And, you know, and I'm the mom of a kid who now for, you know, seven years later says, mom, if you hadn't transported me, I would have died. Like you saved my life. And at the time when we had him transported, you know, we were the worst parents in the world and I'm going to sue you. You can't do this, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards. So I, I, I like how you say we're only thinking about that moment and we're not thinking of the the trajectory that I might not have my son here to give me that wisdom um, if I hadn't made that very difficult choice. So thank you for that, um, talking us through that. Oh, there's like a million other questions I have, but what is something that you wish all parents knew or understood about teens, preteens, adolescence, and trauma? Well, I think uh, I spent some time, I guess, on that question earlier, which is differentiating and working on our definition of trauma. Yeah. That more nervous system-based perspective that that adolescent uh, and young adult symptomology looks different than adults who experience trauma. So don't expect it to look the same or have a therapist expect it to look the same. If they do, then that's probably a warning sign that they're not calibrated to some of this. The other part of it is that there is a point in both attachment relationships and in trauma relationships where relational healing cannot occur unless we get some stabilization on both sides. And if we're trying to build a new relationship house, we can't be doing it on a broken up, shattered foundation. And the foundation of every relationship resides in the individual self of each of those individuals involved. And so we have to have some basic stability and foundational stability underneath to which build a relational house. If there's so much instability that, you know, sessions are being refused, uh, therapy's not occurring, there's constant blocks or misses in being able to have therapeutic contact with each other, it's time to start considering what's the foundation of the house we're building on here. It's too, is it too unstable? to create productive relational healing process. And if that's the case, we have to start looking to some other sources to get some individual stability. And in wilderness, we do do good family interventions. It's not all focused on family work, but there's a lot of good family interventions that happen that also start to repair that relationship too. So both of those are a part of the process inside of wilderness therapy. And I personally believe that wilderness therapy is one of the best environments to be able to work with adolescent relationships at the helm and work with peer relationships and adult caregiver relationships on all the variables that translate back to home. And so it's a tight container. There's a lot of supervision. Stuff still can happen, but it's very, it's much more tightly supervised in most therapeutic environments other than a hospital. And so inside of that, if you want to get some therapeutic progress and you've been in and out of the hospital and those kinds of things, this is a far different approach uh, and it's tightly supervised and your kid can get help and get stability so you can work on getting your kid back. Ultimately, that's what parents want. They want that kid that they raised back and we have to do something to get that to happen. Yeah, the foundation is a good analogy. I like that just in thinking about what are we trying to build on top of? So that's very helpful. Well, I know I need to let you go. If I could ask you one last question, what do you love most about what you do? Well, for me, you know, I, I do a lot of training and I love training clinicians and staff. But for me, it always goes back um, to the kids and young adults we work with. I love getting out in the field and doing interviews with students. I'm going out in, in, tomorrow to visit with a student and looking at what they're getting and what they're not getting in their therapeutic journey. And I like to kind of, you know, come in undercover and, and just be a, ther a wilderness therapist and not a founder and not a, you know, chief clinical director or anything like that. I, I like to walk in and just be this therapist to, and, you know, 
play Columbo a little bit. And, and I still love to go out there and find out where our students are at, what they're getting, what they're not getting, and, and work on the perfect treatment equation. You know, and every single one of our students needs a, an individualized equation based upon their experience in life with stress, especially when it comes to trauma and uh, anxiety issues too. We have to individually calibrate. So a lot of our model has been built around that. So when I get to go out there and kind of hear how it's working and how our, our model and equation is working for them or not, either way, I just love that contact with them and seeing them blossom and grow in their journey. And even when they struggle, I, I still love that conversation because, you know, I, I see that that 30,000 foot view of where they probably were at, where they're at right now and, and hopefully where they're headed. So that's my favorite part of my job. Uh, I would I would love that too. I think the getting out there is so special and it has to just be a full circle thing for you because you're talking about it at a clinical level, but then you actually get to go and hang out outside with the kids and talking with them. Kids, I should say the young, the young people, because they're not yes, necessarily yes, kids. Yes. I had to keep getting mad at me the other day for, for calling him a kid. I had to, I, you know, I'm getting older as the years go by here and I got to remember he's a young man. So yes. uh, I got, <laughs> no. I got, and when you say that to an adolescent, sometimes they'll correct you really fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so if you're listening, Steve gave me a ton of resources that I am listing in the show notes. So we don't have time to go through them here, but just know that you can go to the show notes, brendazane.com forward slash podcast, and you will get all of those books, podcasts, links to resources. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it so much. It's going to be incredibly helpful for parents and um, enjoy your time in the field tomorrow. You bet. Thank you. Thanks, friend. Thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to go to the show notes, you can always find those at brendazane.com forward slash podcast. Each episode is listed there with full transcript, all of the resources that we mention, as well as a place to leave comments if you would like to do that. You might also want to download a free ebook I wrote called Hindsight, Three Things I Wish I Knew When My Son Was Addicted to Drugs. It's full of the information I wish I would have known when my son was struggling with his addiction. You can grab that at brendazane.com forward slash hindsight. Thanks again for listening, and I will meet you right back here next week.